what conditions stipulations magic tricks or manipulations interjecting I'm not Are a movie stripper. I'm one with you. Nice. And this this Aww. parlays well into the thing that I want to talk to you about. So, uh, Hamilton, the movie came out. Yes, I do love Hamilton. <laughs> I'm yeah. unabashed. I think that, look, we can find reasons to find fault. Sure. As we can with a lot of art. I think it's mostly a contrarian sure. thing. But I'm biased because Hamilton was my dad's favorite founding father. I... Oh, now you're going to now you're going to dad dad oh, yeah. trip me oh, on yeah. this. So, I am going to make Brooke watch it with me at some point, but by the current date, one, two, five, five people in my life independently have told me that Philip Sue, who plays Eliza Hamilton looks like you. Brooke. <laughs> <laughs> that is Okay, who are the five people? I'm very curious cuz I actually have had someone really? tell me that and I had no idea who she was and I had to google okay, her. Okay, yeah. so my mom um, Maggie, my cousin, well, actually, okay, so it's going to be more, because it's, like, my cousin's whole family, so Alex, Nora, and my Aunt Allie, <laughs> and, um, they all told you, I was like, yes, Sue? and then also Ethan texted that me yesterday, funny. he's like, I'm watching Hamilton, and, uh, she gives me Brooke vibes, and I'm like, Ethan is also the one who was who told me, okay. like, I was like, he's like, did, did you ever heard that, hear that you like Philip okay. Sue? And I was like, I don't know who that <laughs> okay, is, so. so you're going to have to let me know. <laughs> yeah, so that, okay, that so- is the consensus. And I do see what they're saying, but Aww, I do think that you have a more, you. like, angular thing going on that I'm very into. Um, but, I mean, I'm also into you. your face so Even much. though I don't look like Philip Sue, even a little bit. <laughs> no, no, um, but mm. you don't need to. Thanks. Because... Well, you look like Debbie Harry. I like that. I've gotten that one before. I think my face has gotten a little narrower, for better or worse. Well, she was doing a lot of a she lot of. She was swollen with all sorts of stuff. Her face yeah, a so little, we, we'll give it lots that. Of, and lots it was her birthday. It was her seventy fifth birthday, like two weeks ago. So, and she is still just keeping it just pretty tight. Out. So, She's, yeah. If I did look like her, that bodes well for my future. So, oh, so, this is exceedingly persuasive, by the way. And you're Debbie Harry, yes, and I'm with your Sue, host, right? Debbie and. Philippa. <laughs> no, I'm I'm Brooke I, Rogers, my lovely co-host. Mackenzie Brennan. Is That's me. Mackenzie Brennan. There we go. Um, so we are once again in different states. Somehow you keep leaving. Oh, around the globe, you keep, baby. You keep charting I I America about... just to get yeah, away from me. I know. I, I spent a little time proximate to you and I was like, Jesus Christ, I gotta get the hell out of here. We <laughs> can't be the same state no, as we had a want. great time together from afar, but yeah, but yeah. it was nice to be able to be in a park near you. It was, great. It was you. nice being in the same and, city. Um, but yeah, now I'm in California with a rental car, which is awesome. I I'm realized that I, that was a thing I could do with all this time where I can be mobile. So I think that's fun. Rental yeah. car it. Get a nice mm-hmm. tan. Um, so just the back, a little background on Hamilton. I have not seen it, obviously. Mackenzie has. The, uh, the original cast? I had no feelings. Just... Oh yeah, okay. <laughs> whatever. Um, I had no feelings about Hamilton until Disney Plus See? announced they were going to release that Hamilton. But then everyone was talking about it all the time and tweeting yeah, about it, included and the memes. 
And there were just like it was just it was just piling you on, and on then it. suddenly I was like, you know what? Because you look no. like one of them. <laughs> no, <laughs> you're like, yes, that's me. Look, I, look. I'm getting so many. I'm getting so many of like I'm being targeted from all directions. Yes, you're Hamilton being propaganda, and I hate it. Poor and baby. I, I'm gonna say it. Lynn Miranda Manuel. That's not how that all. goes. It's Lynn Manuel Miranda. Lynn, <laughs> Lynn what? Okay. Lynn Manuel Miranda. Is that his name? Yeah, but like Manuel. Manuel? It's not, yeah. But yeah, why would it be Manuel? I don't know. <laughs> why would it be like a manual tra- White transmit? <laughs> the guy who wrote Hamilton, obviously very smart man. He wrote something that a lot of people like. He's obviously good at writing. And you know, he's married he's to not. a lawyer, so. We, we love it. We love that. Um, but <laughs> his tweets, I don't I don't understand them. He's too happy something. all the goddamn time. He'll and you know something. what? You know what, Brooke? I would be too if that were my life. True. Honestly, if I made a lot of money off I of think a Broadway any, show. Right. Because that's the one thing I've empathized with. Yeah. His presence is a little grating. But I'm like, why is it grating? Oh, I'm jealous. I think I'm jealous a little bit. That he's just happy. Oh, I'm and doing things all the and he's like, not. He, I don't know. He also seems like he's in tune with himself, and he has a happy family, and he's like he's doing well, and he's just very grateful, and he's moving up in the world. If that was possible, I'm like, God damn it! I'm just bitter. He's, I'm no, just. Bitter. I, I wish. I listen. To be clear, I, I wish only the for best L-double-M. for Lynn Manuel Miranda. I need to, it's my, it's my fault that I can't pronounce his name. It's not his fault. And in this modern world, Um, you have to know how to say his name because he ain't going anywhere. And good for him. And more power to him. More power to him. Okay. We're going to have a lot of things today. So we are bidding farewell to the Supreme Court's term. It's the end of SCOTUS season, baby. We're wrapping it up. Have a great summer. SCOTUS. RBG can't come near me. I don't want to do that. We can't trust it. I don't want to be the one to knock her over and then... No, she needs to bubble, yeah. bubble her, put her Although in a bubble. Although she is in better physical shape than I am, um, so she I works know. out. Exactly, I don't work out. but I just like I, I don't like her being I know. out among I the know. elements. I like to. I would like her to be inside with the shades drawn. Don't even nobody and look at many, her. Many many armed guards near her. her. Uh uh-uh. uh. Don't even think about her. Wrap her in plastic wrap like that kid on Little Giants. Just I don't want well, no, anyone to go near her. she has to breathe. Her. So you gotta put little holes in there. Also, like, speaking of weird illnesses and injuries that don't bode well, uh, John Roberts, I guess, like, fell down taking a walk. I'm not... I didn't mean to laugh a little bit. Um, you sometimes <laughs> laugh when you're saying really dark it's, things. No, it's how which, I cope. I, it's very true. Uh, I think. If you ever hear Mackenzie laugh while she's reading something very it's dark, it's only because... Her body's response to horror is like a nervous. And laugh. also, it's a little bit real because I do sometimes gauge whether I can be friends with somebody by how well they weather me making a very like direct and flippant comment about how my dad is dead. And it has formed some really and great friendships <laughs> for me. Brooke and I are we are very close because we were very, very dark. Our friend jokes. Michael Smith. That was one of the first things I said to him, and then I think I just like stared him in the eyes. I it was a darker time in my life, but um served us well. And he probably handled he like a champ. Um, <laughs> he's he's great. I think the thing that struck me was that coverage of that story, which is pretty brief, was it just came out because somebody tipped off the Washington Post, I guess. And so uh, Supreme Court justices aren't required to report medical stuff. There's no formalized procedure or anything. So then by comparison, it's like, oh, RBG always has a prompt, timely, full disclosure, formalized statement that she puts out. 
and John Roberts didn't. So I was like, you know what? Just in a more karmic, ethical scoreboard kind of way, I really do appreciate the full disclosure approach. Um, and I think it's it's honestly politically useful, too, to the extent that we got to know yeah. where everything stands, what what's tenuous. Because I remember being so shocked when Scalia died. And it's like, oh, my God, are you going to... Oh, no, you no, doing no, conspiracy no. I'm not eyes at me. on you. So yeah, no, no, no. There is no conspiracy eyes because I did hear well, one that. thing that one thing that Mackenzie and I have realized in the yes. last uh, the last year of our friendship or so is that um, I am I am Mulder and mm-hmm. she is Scully. Mm-hmm. Uh, she is the skeptic who is always keeping me centered, and I am the one who's always saying maybe it's aliens. And then she just goes on the wild ride with me as we yeah, are just like, like I'll hang on, I'll hang on with you. Reality, but yeah, in you, hanging you'll, on, you'll I'm going to pull you down to the ground a little bit, to the earth. You're you are always riding shotgun in my fever dreams, you know, and we're just riding through. But <laughs> it's beautiful, the, like and terrifying. <laughs> because I'm always the one, and I don't I don't have any theories about Scully's death. I I, I, I don't. She, okay. The reason why she looked at me like that was because I was like that was very abrupt, but. At the the look in my eyes was actually just like the PTSD of oh, remembering yeah. how crazy things got yeah. after Scalia died because immediately the rhetoric flipped into like Republicans Wait, have no. to yeah. turn out for whoever the Republican nominee is because and to if they don't yeah and to if they be don't like, fuck we're throwing the Constitution out the window for this one that because yeah. we just have to a lot of people hmm. will say that Scalia's death is the reason why Trump won because everyone was like there's a free there's an open Supreme Court. Uh, seat now we I need could to see get that. a conservative in that seat yeah i i hadn't put it together that way but i think the way that you're outlining the timeline yeah you're, you're kind of right I, there's certainly yeah. a correlation there um no, absolutely it was yeah the, I, the supreme court not for everyone but the supreme court seat for a lot of people was a deciding factor it is seat. now too i mean you think about liking the candidate and like in the candidate's personal life versus the effect right that, and we'll get into that in the decisions that we talk about today um yeah fair uh, Oh, so point being, the John Roberts thing was not a big deal. I think he just, like, had low blood pressure. He was dehydrated. All been there. Whatever. But more the idea of, I like the premise of full disclosure when you are in a position that is so um, tenuous and so decisive. And uh, especially in a time like this, I think Mm. it's good to know. And apparently Anthony Kennedy was another one who had some, like, he had a stent put in his heart or something. Again, maybe this is the problem with with having judges in just Supreme Court justices in office until they're in their 80s and 90s. Like, yeah, I feel not good. I get that. I also do get some of the justifications for life terms and for having people who have been around the block and are more measured. Because I think of the good old judges that I know, and obviously my own judge comes to mind, and it's like they have a lifetime of legal experience. They tend to be less fiery once you get up to that point in life. You have compromised. You've worked with it. So it's kind of like you have reached the pinnacle of your career. You've done everything. So now and only now are you You qualified. You have nothing to prove. Yeah. Yeah. You're considering your legacy at this point. Yeah, and they're not campaigning for a new spot because it is a lifetime appointment. So it's not like you have to look forward and, and be lobbying for approval next time like it's just you're there you're fine but. no absolutely and i think that um that's actually a sure. transition legacy yes legacy absolutely to the supreme court decision that we're going to talk about today which is um a title seven case yeah. a couple good ones this term good ones and bad notable ones we'll say notable and so we're going to talk primarily about this title seven of the civil rights act of 1964 case um which i believe was bostock 
But just other ones to hit if you want to do some research at home. There was the DACA decision. Um, there was another one about, I think it was called Espinoza, about separation of church and state that essentially said that it's obliterating the wall between church and state. They held that if a state wants to give any taxpayer funding, so every taxpayer who contributes to education, which is, is not an elective thing in general... If a state wants to give any funding to private schools, they have to fund religious schools. And so uh, in a lot of people's minds, that is a violation of the Establishment Clause. It's certainly a radical interpretation of the Establishment Clause, which is the clause of the First Amendment that says that there shall be no official government establishment of religion. So that was an interesting one. There were two reproductive rights cases, and you and I are going to, in the near future, we did a reproductive rights episode early on that now is obsolete, as so many things are, but also we want to do it more justice um, now that we're a little more well-versed at seasoned, yeah. marinated, we're more marinated yeah. in podcasting and we um, want to redo the repro yeah, rights but, one. So there were two cases. One was good, in, in my opinion, if I can pass it. Uh, one did not overturn you can. Yeah, I give you, I give permission to pass your opinion, Mackenzie, it's really, go for it. Yeah. That's what the podcast is for, actually. Fair enough. So that one said that this Louisiana law about this just these workarounds to chill access to abortion. So it was about physicians having admitting privileges at hospitals, even though the facilities where you do abortions are outpatient procedures. They're fully contained. Yeah. There's no reason that you should have to have an affiliation with some other medical facility. It doesn't prevent theoretical emergency cases from going there. Uh, and it also would have closed one of two, I think, facilities that existed in the state. But then the other one, it was a birth control case that kind of followed in the shoes of Hobby Lobby, which allowed employers to not cover insurance for employee birth control under their health insurance because of, like, moral, religious objections. But also, right. I'm a corporation with a religious belief, which is absurd. Well, in the, the Little <laughs> Sisters of the Poor case specifically, which was decided uh, this week, I believe, um, basically reaffirmed that they had rights under the First Amendment to deny their employees health care, um, uh, birth control coverage. Mm-hmm. But the situation there was a little bit muddled because it, what actually they were refusing to do was to sign a form that affirmed that they had a religious problem. If they had signed that form, their employees would have been able to access birth control through the federal government. Ah, yeah, because you and have kind of a workaround through Obamacare. So, right. So the federal government wasn't actually going to demand that they provide their employees with birth control through their employer-based health care system. What they were going to ask was that they sign a form saying that they had a religious uh, religious qualms with providing birth control, yeah. and the federal government would have provided that for their employees. Which is but tough because, because that. Well, I just to throw in before we get off that subject, um, that was a, a huge piece of the reasoning in Hobby Lobby that the majority used to allow Hobby Lobby, which again, a corporation, um, to right. exercise a personal religious belief and objection, which to me is kind of crazy because. Corporations are people in a legal fiction sense, but they don't have religion. As Mitt Romney said during his run against Barack Obama, (sighs) corporations are people. Yeah, they are. And they go to church all by themselves. They're not. Um, (laughs) But, like, the majority was talking about 
balancing the the burden on both sides there and said like well they can always go through the federal government so i always have a bit of a nerve there that it's like why why should the burden then fall on the employee to figure out this alternative procedure but right. so this kind of but even in that, that case the little sisters of the poor in that case refused to sign that document mm-hmm. because they because by signing that it was one step toward their employees getting health care through the federal government so like they, they refused saw to that even... as as a sin it's it's a whole thing i don't know well the whole you thing know, is par- the whole part about it being a sin to me makes very little sense the the reason that a lot of these objections have been expressed in the eyes of the religious parties is that they consider birth control or certain forms of birth control to be abortifacients, which scientifically they're simply not. I think for more fundamentalist Catholics, it's actually a problem with uh, the idea of what sex is for. Oh, yeah, I mean, that's part of it, too. But literally in the decision, they say that they consider certain things like the morning after pill to be abortifacients. And that is scientifically not not what it does. And I don't know how you can endorse having a religious opinion that just is about scientific fact, but wrong about science. So anyways, well, well, that would be that would be (laughs) suggesting Uh, that uh, with religion and science don't match up or that we care about facts in general. (laughs) What what are you talking about? Anyway, before we upset everyone, let's just yeah. So that was another one. You want to hit the there are two tax cases that I I think are generally a good thing so the two it's actually kind of big uh the supreme court ruled that manhattan district attorney cy vance can pursue trump's tax returns uh which he's been trying to do under a subpoena trump has been fighting people looking into his tax returns since before he was president they they uh started pushing for him to release tax returns in like 2015 which every presidential Um, candidate has done every serious one who's gotten to the general has done it's pretty common the the main theories about why he doesn't want to release them range from he's not as rich as he says he is Mm. to he probably has committed some kind of tax uh what, what kind of magic is that was kind of what, yeah, some tax I magic. Yeah, I can only speculate some creative, at this point, but I'm going to guess legal creativity like with his taxes. Yeah, is probably getting a little freewheeling, trying to find some loopholes. Certainly he moved his residence from New York to Florida, and I think even openly cited tax laws. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, so though that was a very big deal, and it was the piece de resistance of, of the scotus term everybody was waiting for them to rule on this and we even mentioned uh executive immunity in the last episode that we did about qualified immunity um as another breed of the same species kind of and so both holdings ruled that there is no absolute immunity for the executive for the president uh which is a big deal it means and they even said the words in the cy vance the new york ruling they said nobody's above the law so I yeah. think that's a beautifully consistent refrain that right. has been used against Trump a number of times. And uh, I'm glad that, like, co branches are driving it home. Yeah. 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 You know, in the same decision. No, in a different decision. Sorry. In a similar decision, they also blocked congressional investigators from accessing the same records. So they are allowing... Right for right now. They, they, yeah. they temporarily blocked them. So they are allowing district attorney 
Syvance to pursue those documents, but they are blocking congressional investigators from, from getting them. Which, I mean, it'll all end up the same way. Most likely, they will end up public, um, to, you know, at the end of all of this. And but... who knows when that... That's the key thing, because Syvance now will have to probably reissue and then execute the subpoenas now that we know the law. Um It'll be a race against time to see if this happens before the election and right. when they actually disclose. And even if it will matter, I, I honestly can't imagine I know, that anything we're going to find out from these taxes. I'd rather have it than not, matter. certainly. No, um, absolutely. And I think even the, the congressional, uh, like, even though that one didn't necessarily give them access to it right now, the holding was not that the president is no holds barred immune from that kind of investigation in future. It was just at the current time. He doesn't have to turn it over based on what they've revealed in that investigation. So uh, altogether, a good thing for people who would like to see what his tax returns might reveal, a good thing for people who don't want the executive to resemble um, a monarch in general, um, Which, and for by the way, people who like checks the, and balances. <laughs> the stance on this podcast is we don't. In this house, in this yeah, podcast, we do not want the presidency to resemble a monarchy. Yeah. But speaking yeah, and of... and I think that that's kind of been the consensus since the Founding Fathers, including Hamilton. I will watch Hamilton with you. God yeah. damn it, I'll do it. Oh, God. I'll I cuddle believe... you the whole time, my little Philip Sue. Only if I get to be the... Only if I get to be the little spoon. Fine. That's it. But then you're... <laughs> yeah, that's good, because then you're closer to the TV, you can see all the action. I like it. Um, speaking of action between two women. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. As former presidential candidate Kirsten Gillibrand once said. Kiss me. Gay rights? (laughs) In fucking deed. Uh, You want to intro this bitch? (laughs) I'm going to get wine while you intro this. Did you see my shirt? Let me see it. Call my school, tell them I died. Oh my god, I love it. Why do you always have the best shirts? I'm leaving that yes. in. I'm leaving that part Good, in. good. So they can listen to me pop Woo, my beer baby, open. all okay. right. Title 7. So, See, it's good because this is a, a very celebratory seven. conversation. Um, this is the one... Yes, yeah, cheers. this is the one that we handpicked to uh, to deep dive on. We're going to try to do more deep dives because I think that is where we hit our stride best. We are really good at deep dives. <laughs> uh, that's mostly it. because we are both... Again, as we know, we both just turn into feral research creatures. Yes, yeah. That actually is, like, if we started a band, I feel like it would be called Feral Feral Research Creatures. creatures. That's a hot marquee right That's what we should have called the podcast, Feral Research Creatures. Maybe that could be, like, a merch thing. Anyways, um, but yeah, so Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, this was addressed in a case called Bostock versus something or other, I don't know, I just call him the first, the plaintiff's name. Bostock versus something or other. Yeah. I don't know. Do you know? No, I'm trying to bring it up right now. Bostock v. Clayton County. There you go. Then you'll sound even smarter. (laughs) We're so good. Yeah. There we go. We're on it. it. See, research. We (laughs) love to do it. (laughs) Feral research creatures. So prepared. So, yeah, this is interpreting federal law. Obviously, it's not the Constitution, but it's pretty darn close. Uh, LBJ signed the Civil Rights Act of 1964, um, and it was a pretty big deal. The clause in question in Title VII forbids uh, employers from discharging employees for any reason that has to do with race, sex, religion, national origin, a lot of categories, but not expressly included 
is anything like gender identity or sexual orientation. So all right, that we have all covered to, in the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Yeah. So Street, in, right? in this clause in Title VII, um, we have only sex included in the categories against which an employer can't discriminate. And so if an employer openly fires their employee for being gay, up until this decision, depending on state laws and state courts' interpretations of, of federal law, of Title VII, uh, it was a little open-ended whether that was legal. And in some right, places gay it was. Or, gay or trans. So yes, exactly. The, before now, uh, firing an employee due to their sexual orientation or gender identity was legal. At least it was not decisively illegal under federal law. That's right. Yeah, there was no protection unless mm -hmm. they were in some kind of union. Um, the reason that we needed this case, just to kind of elucidate that framework a little more, is that not all states have state law protections that do the same thing. A lot do, like New York State has the human rights law that serves essentially the same purpose but goes a little farther and expressly says gender identity, um, sexual orientation, a lot of other categories. Um, a lot of other states have similar laws that go, you know, varying directions and or have interpreted in their own state courts or state constitutions or um, lower federal court holdings interpreting Title VII that have not yet reached the Supreme Court that, like, in this region, we're interpreting Title VII to mean that sex includes gender identity, sex includes orientation, sex includes LGBTQIA, etc., um, mm -hmm. But there are states and regions where that was not established. So that's what this had to resolve. And a lot of the arguments against providing for and protecting gay and trans workers underneath the umbrella mm -hmm. of this law was that the original intent of the law was not to protect mm -hmm. gay and trans workers, which is an interesting argument on two fronts. The first is that it implies that the, there was no way in 1964 when this law was passed that the that lawmakers could have conceived of <laughs> gay or trans people, which we they know is not then, true. They, First of all, gay people were invented in 1935. Commies. Commies. <laughs> Commie lies in By the communists bread. in mm -hmm. 1935. Yeah. Um, and also, we know for a fact that, yeah, gay and trans people... <laughs> They didn't exist. They didn't right. exist before 1964. There is no. It's not like Jane so when Austen we wrote sex or back or, then. <laughs> we couldn't. Like, it's not possibly have known that this would be perverted into more equality. <laughs> it's not like Emily Dickinson was a raging lesbian. Okay. Yeah. She was straight. We right. all know this. No, That's why um, she married a ton of men. Then. She loved leaving her house and, and dating men. Famous, <laughs> famous for famous much for like loving me. going out of her house and dating men. <laughs> um, no, th so this, this this idea of like the absence in the minds of the, the right. original lawmakers of of gay well, and trans a, people. I'm gonna guess that's a means to an end. I mean, right. so this is exactly. a five. Is. Yeah, so this is a five-four well, decision, it, and it was written by Gorsuch. Gorsuch was the one who, yeah, he, Gorsuch actually crossed party lines, if you will. Ooh. The Supreme Court has become so partisan that now we can say that. Uh, Gorsuch crossed party lines, kind of defied what conservatives had expected of him. And broke and a lot of hearts made in this doing decision. so. And you know what? I, even though I'm sure I'm not going to... Uh, I'm not going to agree with all the decisions he makes in the future, nor have I agreed with all the decisions he made in the past. Um, he was sticking to a consistent, uh, consistent belief system, which is textualism. Well, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. So, and we'll get a little more into 
contextualism versus originalism in a second, but I want to at least hit what his reasoning was expressly first. Um, I think I was surprised because even with textualism, you can make it work for you because there's only so much that's on paper ever. Um, but the fact that he is such a religious man and a religious jurist, and he has a very concrete, at least from his past decisions, has a very concrete view of what religion dictates and how far that should go into the law. And I mean, you see that later this term in in the uh, birth control and abortion-related decisions. He certainly right. got back to that. But I do appreciate that he is willing to budge and that... He's willing to depart from... Yeah, the the uh, the model. Yeah, exactly. Of and I think, in a way, in order to make decisions, right? And I think, in a yeah. way, that is very rational and logically sound. So his reasoning—I know you had mentioned his reasoning before, right? So the, there's um, and Mackenzie will be able to explain in, in further detail uh, this this idea. But there's uh, this this kind of battle of, and some, well, sometimes they're married, but oh, uh, oh. textualism versus originalism. I meant sex. Uh, do you want to just explain oh, the yes, whole sex okay. thing for just until we get so, more into the weeds? Yeah. <laughs> the the way that he kind of got to this point logically was that um, if you fire someone for being gay, um, so if you, if you have an employee who is a woman who is attracted mm-hmm. to women, and you have an employee who is a man who's attracted to men, and you no, that's wrong. Wait, wait. Sorry. You can just use the woman, uh, a woman who's attracted yeah. to men. Yeah. Yes. So if you have an employee one. who's a woman who's attracted to men and an employee who is a man who's attracted to men, and you fire the employee who is a man who's attracted to men, you are firing them on the basis of sex. Of their and own therefore sex. Therefore, you are violating yeah. of their own sex, not their sexual orientation, mm-hmm. but their own sex. Yeah. So that is inherently violating the text of the law. And you can make the um, same or a similar argument with um, gender identity because say right, exactly. it's how you outwardly portray yourself or the pronouns that you choose. So if you have somebody who is born like assigned female at birth who wears skirts and calls herself she and then you have another employee who's assigned male at birth who wears skirts and refers to herself as she and then you fire the one who is assigned male at birth again, you're not looking at the professed gender identity, you're not really even getting to that point, but you are seeing the fact that on its face, the person who was fired was fired for gender, or for sex, rather. For sex, right. It's not, it's about, it's not work-related. It's based off of their mm-hmm. sex. And how their the behavior correlates to that. assigned yeah. male at birth, and are a tra- if they're a trans woman who was assigned male at birth, you are still firing them yeah, based yeah. off sex. So it actually, logically, it makes sense. It does make a lot of sense. sense. It, I'm glad to see that kind of um, deference to logic in what otherwise gets muddled with contentious morality conversations sometimes. No, absolutely. It's, it, yeah, it's very refreshing to see some just, like, yeah, logical consistency in interpreting a law yeah. this way. Um, so it's interesting. I mean, you get more context when you look back at how some of the state courts and circuit courts, so the federal courts, had interpreted Title VII in the past in very similar suits, but obviously before the Supreme Court had seen fit, for whatever reason, to um, to address Title VII and gender identity and sexual orientation. Uh, there was one, Cokie versus CUNY, uh, City University of New York, in 2016, that was an employment discrimination case about uh, sexual orientation, and it was a Title VII case, and that was where 
New York, so the Second Circuit, which is a pretty big federal district. That's where the SDNY is. It's where the EDNY is and a lot of other tri-state area stuff. But they said that um, basing it on another case called Simonton. So Simonton was a Second Circuit precedent that said claims based only on sexual orientation. So if they're just saying I was fired for being gay with not a whole lot more detail, that was not sufficient to be a a Title VII claim. But, and this is such a, a weird blurry line, but if the discrimination in the sexual orientation claim involved failing to conform to sexual stereotypes then it was a Title VII claim. So that's kind of where we get that reasoning of, okay, maybe just sexual orientation isn't enough, but if you're saying it because they're not conforming to the sexual stereotype of wearing pants versus dresses or dating men versus women, that then we have more to work with. So you saw the lower courts kind of trying to work with this reasoning, and obviously Gorsuch adopted a lot of that. And the EEOC, which is a federal office, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, yes. Uh, there's another case before them, so it's like an agency, it's not a court, but they do make like discrimination-based decisions. Um, so they also had a case called Baldwin within recent years that said determining any sort of employment thing based on sexual orientation is inherently sex-based. Like, you can't divorce those two concepts. Right. So that's kind of the Absolutely. framework that we were working on, and I think that that all strengthened the idea that the Supreme Court should follow suit. But yeah, now we can get into originalism versus textualism. What is the law that we're looking oh, at? The, How the are fun we part it? of our the fun portion oh. of our podcast. Oh, Let's talk about original intent it. versus textualism. Mm-hmm. So uh, I talked about this a little bit when I was on our friend of the podcast, Ben Kissel's show, Ape Against Top Hat. Who's that? But this whole idea, and I, I wanted to talk about it with you, my lovely lady lawyer friend, Mwah. because you have all this rich knowledge and history about it, and, and I really want to dig into that. We did when the three of us went out to get drinks in a park later that day. Oh, we talked about it. So, originalism or original intent versus textualism is the idea of like again. I compare it to like originalism is the spirit of the law, mm-hmm. where textualism is the letter of the law. So people who adhere to, and you pointed out before, but originalism is actually a very, is a relatively new idea. Kind of ironic. And people kind of globbed on to the idea of originalism um, from a conservative point of view of like wanting to maintain some kind of conservative like 1950s social and political structure. I'm going to call it the opposite of progressive without outright calling it regressive that's what i'll say it's it's like you know how sometimes you're on a boat right <laughs> and the boat is going you're damn right uh-huh and some of us want to keep going on the boat and see where sure. that leads and some of us want to throw an anchor down i love the boat metaphor because it really that mode of transportation that's getting me there i think that that really i'm relating to that thank um, you yeah uh but it's the uh, the the whole original originalism versus textualism thing is like um, people who are textualists, which Gorsuch has historically been more textualist and is uh, the, the decision that the um, the Title VII decision that was made to protect LGBTQ workers was uh, based on a textualist understanding of the law, mm-hmm. which is that the way that the, the law reads is the, is more important. Whereas original intent people, originalist people, will say that the way the law was intended is more yeah. important. And what the um, caveat that I would put on that is that the two often overlap and that 
another distinction that I would add to the picture of different jurisprudential schools of thought is that this doesn't really, um, that original intent is, and textualism, which, which do overlap a lot, that's kind of one side of a spectrum. And then the whole constitution is a living document, uh, which ironically also uses intent because there's a lot of evidence that the founding fathers and the drafters of the constitution and the drafters of, of a lot of these formative documents and laws uh, intended them to move and be malleable with time and circumstance that yeah. was not foreseen at the time. And, and that was the beauty right. of it. Um, and the irony is, so I, I believe in the, in the constitution as a living document yeah. uh, it, for, in many cases, including, um, in my opinion, uh, the Second Amendment, which is where a lot of, ironically, a lot yeah. of original intent people kind of start to lose, right? Their, and that's where I lose I, their luster a little bit, where they're they're like, oh well, you know, because if you, if you try to explain the, eye roll the Second of the Amendment of to me, I'm sorry, what? That, that's the eye roll of the school of thought to me, because like you can't have it both ways, right? Like, you gotta... And I, I, you know, I I am someone who actually believes in in um, the right of people to keep weapons in their home under under certain circumstances mm-hmm. and within checks and balances i think that you know we should be reasonable about it yeah. but there is a right <laughs> yeah that is uh in the second amendment that sure. you have a right to own uh own firearms to protect yourself from government abuse and tyranny more guns has rarely in actuality or in practice proven to reduce violence or or up protection i understand in a a self home protection sort of sense in very sure. regulated circumstances but you know where this is this the, is an example yeah. of of circumstances changing because when that amendment or any amendment or any law whether it be relatively recent like 1964 um when it was drafted you cannot foresee the circumstances in which it's going to be applied you simply can't and that's right. why and that you was, draft if, it with that awareness if you read the text of the second amendment we talked about it's, this before it's but baffling. They, it, it, Check out our episode, Well-Regulated Militia. Go back, listen to Well-Regulated Militia. We talk about it there, but it's like... Um, and actually, my my views have evolved probably since then, so we'll see how much. Well, because out. it's but an evolving world, right? That I, it is, I think that's absolutely. a testament to our point. So some details about textualism versus originalism that I do want to throw in before we depart from the definitional phase. Um, so yeah, like you said, relatively modern school of thought, uh, which is kind of the name belies it a little bit. Um, it really saw its its advent in recognition and in name with Scalia. So we think like that was in our lifetime. Uh, and it was a very intentional branding effort. So Scalia used to advocate for original meaning. It originally... <laughs> It first was called original understanding, and he thought that that was too um, subjective sounding. So he started pushing for it to be called original intent, original meaning, originalism to lend it more credence. And um, so my dad was a constitutional scholar and actually wrote about original intent. He had a quote that I, you got to indulge me. I do think that it independently is good, even though I happen to like my dad. But um when my dad was introducing it, he said constitutional interpretation justified by certain preferences of its enactors is variously labeled original intent, original understanding, or original meaning, depending in part on the optimism, credulity, or political preference of the observer. So that kind of gets to the whole idea of Scalia being like, well, let's call it right. meaning, not understanding, because we're going to pretend that our interpretation is the only one. Um, so right. that the idea there... 
And you and I have talked about this recently even, that you're able to cherry pick pretty easily when you're looking at references even from contemporaneous thinkers and trying to interpret what they meant at the time, that you could find one book from the time that uses a word one way, and I'll find one that uses it my way. And so there yeah. isn't even really an original meaning when you're looking for that half the time. No, absolutely. But um, the other thing that I did want to hit about textualism... So many modern originalists, and now I'm quoting from my dad's um, thing that he wrote for Harvard Law Review, that is good if you're into that. It's very weedy and footnote heavy. But I'll try to... We're going to put it in the in the show I'll... notes, Oh, folks. yeah. Oh, yes. And we will have a website soon. We're going to hit it at the end. Um, but I'll do some weed whacking and interpreting of my father's dialect. <laughs> so... Many modern originalists also refer to themselves as textualists, suggesting that like many, if not all, constitutional scholars, so essentially saying like, all constitutional scholars obviously refer to the text. That's a given. That's a foregone conclusion. Right. Refer to themselves as textualists, suggesting that like many, if not all, constitutional scholars, they prefer to rely foremost upon the Constitution's text. So, duh, we all do that. We all look at the text of the law. However... That moniker belies the fact that, like many constitutional scholars, originalists and textualists are often forced to refer to other sources and canons when the Constitution's terseness fails to resolve interpretive conflict on its own. So right, that's we're looking the at other precedent. We're looking at other um, other legal yeah. voices. It's not just like we're reading the, the we're reading the text of the Constitution could, in a vacuum. Right. We're never doing that. That and never happens. You can call yourself a textualist until the cows come home. But the fact is, the text... I do. I do, even <laughs> after the cows come home. <laughs> because, yeah, if we're looking at the definition of it, yeah, I call myself a textualist as well, I guess, because, of course, I read the law. But... Yeah, as a yeah, lawyer, I, I think that's everybody probably... everybody does. But it only gets you so far. So that's, that's my, yeah. uh, long story short, too late, my long-winded caveat on the concept of textualism and originalism, and also showing kind of the overlap thereof, because original intent... Right, like, if you're not a textualist, what are you yeah. actually doing? Like, right, it's like, original intent is kind of a bizarre way, if you, if you really dig into it, original intent is a really weird way to read the law and also, like, apply it to today's yeah. world. If, if you really are taking the understanding of men 200 years yeah. ago and applying it to today... That's a It's a weird really, move, and actually that was the that's, whole... That's not only an inappropriate, but an irresponsible way to read I agree. I mean, that's, that's a bit of a matter of opinion, I guess, but that was actually the whole premise of this uh, pamphlet. Not only is yeah. it kind of anathema to think that way, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense now, but the Founding Fathers actually did not intend us to do that. They did not intend us to use original intent solely to interpret it, but they wanted it to be a living document. So that's what all the footnotes are about, being like, hey, look, at this point they said we want to interpret it with the times. So this is our, like, very involved primer on how we interpret laws. And if you hear them talk about Gorsuch being textualist, if you hear them talk about Scalia having been originalist, this is a, a basic critical lens through which to look at yeah. that. You I lost, lost me? you for a second. Oh, am I back? It says it's yeah, my internet. Your... My internet connection is unstable. Mine is too. join the club internet I know, connection. Right? We're all so unstable. am I. Well, we should touch on Roger. Stone oh yeah, now. we want to touch on Roger Stone. The last thing I want to say about Title Seven is it's not all is not well, as things often are not. 
All are yeah. never well. All are? All is? You guys know what I'm trying to All say. All are never well. <laughs> I are not well. <laughs> That's the main takeaway. We, we is not well. Me is not uh-uh. well. Is your children learning not to well. quote G.W. Bush? <laughs> but so there's Lord. a pretty big remaining loophole in not even just federal law, but in American common law that pervades the states and the federal systems. So in the U.S. we have this thing called at-will employment, which is the way that a lot of people are employed. Basically, what that means is employment is terminable at any time by either party. It sounds pretty good in a sense that either one can walk away in a way that binds the other one to their walking away at any time. So it's like, if you want to quit, you can quit. Um, If your employer wants to fire you, they can fire you. So contracts can draft around that and they can say, you must work here for two years or else, you know, you have to pay us a certain sum of money. There's some fee for breaking a contract. But a lot of jobs are at-will contracts, so you can be fired at any right. time. Um, or quit Which means that, right. Which is good. But that effectively means that your employer could fire you because you're queer. Without saying it outright. So Without saying that you're yeah. because you're queer, and then you would have no recourse at yeah. all. So there is like... There is a certain element to this where it's like, yes, I'm so glad that gay and trans people have some element of protection. And it prevents law, outright discrimination, but as long as which we is have, good, and it strengthens that whole like absolutely. societal messaging that legal it's unacceptable yeah. to discriminate against gay and trans mm-hmm. people, especially at a time when there's so much violence against trans people. Um, I am glad that we are reasserting that. that yeah, that and even smaller scale should be protected. Yeah, like microaggression kind of messaging. Um, it's good to have a stronger legal protection framework always, but right. um, at the same time, the the in actuality, because we have pretty weak labor laws in this country, and because at will employment is still very much a thing, you could be fired for basically anything, and yeah. they unless you can prove that it was because of your sex. Your sexual orientation, your race, your It just has to be a little better masked. Yeah, your gender identity. You really don't have recourse at all. So And and under contract law, they have addressed the whole idea of like wrongful discharge plus at will employment. And the protections are a lot weaker than wrongful discharge under other circumstances. They say that you don't have to, as an employer, show just cause in the same way that you might in other circumstances. Um, but if there's some sort of egregious conduct on the part of the employer, which is, again, subjective, there's there might be wrongful discharge found in a court. But then it's like, that's a really high bar, and you have to go through all the legal rigmarole. So, it, yeah, it's very it's pretty easy for an employer to still be like, I don't like you, and the subtext is it's because of your gender identity, sexual orientation, and bye. Burden's on you now. Do yeah. your worst. Now you have to prove yeah, that right. it was because of one yeah, of those Yeah, so that's, that's where we are now. Um, um, and with that, we bid farewell to the Supreme Court term and uh, live to fight another day. Goodbye, Supreme Court term. Let's hope it, it doesn't was... suck more next time and that it gets better, not worse. <laughs> not great. Yeah, um, again, just wrap wrap RBG up in just a little a little roll of cellophane. Give her gentle that's little kisses Roll her into, into a it, closet. Not with your spit. Mm-hmm. Don't go near yeah, her. Social distance. Actually, social don't touch dist- her. Put her in a room. Put her in a room and don't don't even look Can at her. Can you cryo freeze? Don't even talk. No, just don't breathe not. on her. 
That's probably a bad call. I mean, she's got she's got to make decisions. That's the thing is like we got to roll her out. To Can make we keep the brain out every year of the freeze. That's now it's just Futurama. Good, now I'm just talking no. about Futurama. Now we're just now we're just now this is getting bleak. Brooke, getting bleak. <laughs> Speaking oh, of bleak, yeah. uh, one of my least favorite Americans. Ooh, and that is a. I'm gonna say hard fought bottom fight. five. Bottom five wow. least favorite Americans. Yeah, sure. no, I, my, I'm gonna say, Roger Stone, is one of those people who he doesn't know that I exist, you know. but he is my nemesis in my heart, and I will outlive him, and he I might will know you him. exist a little bit. Maybe, I will make sure he does before Good. before the end comes. But he just keeps. That slimy little skink. Rearing his slimy little that greasy wriggly white little head. salamander. That conniving little gross snack. pinstripe fedora. And I don't like that he has taken pinstripes from me. I like pinstripes. We've talked about this. Yeah. Beetlejuice still owns pinstripes, first back. of all. But I look better that than man them. managed to slither Slime his way, his way out yeah. of another problem. Roger Stone's... <laughs> 40-month prison sentence was commuted by President Donald Trump this Friday, this past Friday. So it's yesterday in today's, um, in today's days. And I'm going to say we called it, but I, um, I don't know that that was such a hard call to make. I mean, we thought that he was probably going to happen. Part of me was like, is, is Trump going to risk all of that bad press right, it just looks to free really this guy who we really didn't care about that much in the first place well, and also every, the answer is yes every time that it starts landing close to him it's like this damns you you pardoning or commuting damns you as much as it damns them if that makes sense like yeah this doesn't reflect really well on him either he could have just let him you know sit in prison for yeah, 40 the whole months crime was born of him protecting trump so and it's I not like he the did reason this he did it thing was he wanted to send a message that like if you protect me I will I will protect yes, you. Absolutely. Um just which like does Paul not Manafort. bode well for the next few months. Which is not his MO. Usually Donald Trump, if you walk out on the Well limb it's for a quid pro quo, he, baby. Like that's that's what it has no, to be. There like, has to be a give to the take. With so many of his other allies, if you walk out on a limb for him, he will saw it off after you. But that's when you don't have anything left to offer. So what does Roger Stone have to offer is the question. He already gave the, the like, he, I think he's been to the mountaintop and he still stayed tight-lipped as much as he could because that was also true of Paul Manafort that, like, and we know he's Paul a Manafort conniving... did the weird retraction. Like, ugh. yeah. Right, like, we know that Roger Stone His is morals a conni- aren't going to kick in, Honestly, maybe Trump just needs him for the election because he is an incredibly smart and, uh, and, and, Talented. It's a yeah. It's a very effective combo. Political and it's proven to be a deadly combo. Yeah. So uh, he commuted his sentence, which is like it's kind of splitting hairs to make a distinction. But commuting is um, reducing or like giving you a reprieve or diminishing the sentence. Uh, Like think it's saying you do not have to serve the rest of your sentence. Yeah. However much you have served. I do love my Latin roots and to play around with etymology. But if you think of what a commute is in, like, common parlance, it's getting you the distance from point A to point B in an expedient way. So it's, like, it's shortening your sentence served. So it's not pardoning you, which essentially absolves you of 
all crimes in a legal sense and in an official sense that you no longer did this thing, quote unquote. And so I think Joe Arpaio, uh, especially because he had, I believe, served whatever sentence he was going to serve. It was more of a symbolic thing at that point that I'm going to pardon you because I want to endorse what you did and say that it wasn't wrong. So it's like a little bit of a lesser step to commute somebody's sentence versus fully absolve them. Um, the pardon of Joe Arpaio, I feel like, was much more about him endearing himself to yes. voters in that state and other red voters who are and making a hawks. racist statement. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, but there is a distinction there. I was hearing somebody who uh, had worked for the Bush administration when G.W. Bush commuted the sentence of somebody who'd worked for Dick Cheney, and they were saying like, even in that circumstance, it was less damning because the person had not actively aided either Cheney or G.W. Bush in the commission of crimes, allegedly, or in something a little bit shady. So it wasn't as personally connected. And even that, because it landed so close to home, with Cheney being the vice president, um, was seen as very questionable. So things that we transgressed under G.W. Bush uh, are now paling in comparison. So just to give some perspective on that. Absolutely. And another point to make is that um, I actually think that commutations can be very um, yes, yes. well used. Asking the, pardons, frankly. I mean, it usually yeah, is going to come about in commutations. But uh, yeah, governors of states can pardon and commute state crimes, just to put it on a state from level a, too. From a criminal justice standpoint, um, there have actually been a lot of great uses of mm-hmm. pardons and commutations. We've actually seen that just even with Trump uh, in March, hmm. he uh, commuted the sentence. He commuted the sentences of Denise Hall and Crystal Muniz. We we spoke about them on uh, a previous episode, um, but both of those women were uh, were given ex- in- incredibly harsh sentences for drug charges, and they their sentences were commuted. The, and we and I at the time and now agree with the commutation of their sentences. Mm-hmm. They they should not have been behind bars for these drug charges, which are not even not even high level drug charges. Yeah. They're pretty low level drug charges. Um, and so I'm glad he commuted their sentences, and I'm glad that they are now out of prison. Um, and I think that it speaks to a need for criminal justice reform as a whole. Um, however, but why did he do that? <laughs> he did that because Kim Kardashian West advocated on their behalf to the president and i think that she's speaking his language sorry, yeah we might be able to hear in the background i mean we're being hit with a tropical storm really in, slash hurricane <gasps> in uh new york right now there's another one that's been happening on and off all week and now there's it's the it's end just of like days baby pouring we got flash flood warnings anyway so if you can hear that in the background i'm sorry be glad that it's not a hail of toads or social distance recordings always fun anyway um, yeah, th- those women deserved deserved uh, lighter sentences, and the fact that they were given the harsh sentences they got are a, is a product of an incredibly unfair and unjust system. However, um, they were released because Kim Kardashian West, who's a very famous and powerful woman, advocated to Donald Trump on their behalf, and that is um, the fact that that's what we rely on for people to get justice for people mm-hmm. to get free is ridiculous. And so as, as much as I agree with commutations under certain circumstances, this, yeah, is, the pure blatant, this is blatant corruption. This is blatantly yeah. him releasing a friend of his 40 months before his term is, or his, uh, 40 yeah. months before Roger Stone's 
Um, and the reason was COVID. The term is up. And so I think that is the reason is COVID. Yeah. Well, yeah, like that's the best objective reason that he could give that was uh, not he did a good thing for me and it also saves my ass potentially for future harm. Um, but it almost highlights the fact that other people are serving sentences and he has not chosen to commute their sentences. But I, I think it it begs reform of the commutation and pardon standard and how it's applied and then hopefully yeah. some more uniform application that allows for wider application, but not just like the executive can do it whenever, no questions asked. Um, but that's the only time that it's going to happen. And so, like, let's hope you're friends with him. But no more, no less. Um, I think that we really could hone that. And it really has not been honed, at least on a federal executive level. No, since- I think. The on the federal so. executive level, when it comes to the president, especially when the president has been impeached, which he has yeah. been impeached by the House, um, I don't for think related he should have, conduct. He should have the ability to pardon friends of his who are in, who have been convicted for crimes associated with him. I think that's yeah. a comp- that, that those are, that's not checks and balances. No. We need we and need better checks on that. It's one of those things where we're in territory in new territory now because nobody has pushed the envelope so far in the past in the position. And it's so brazen that the framers didn't even speculate to cover that territory. Because right, it's like, well, they, they won't just disregard this, yeah. it. Um, so, yeah, I, we're in unprecedented territory. Hopefully it can be a silver lining that spurs more oversight and um, prudent regulation with how it's applied. Absolutely. Um, but, yeah, that's that's all she wrote, folks, I think. Um, that's the show. Uh, a couple things. Ethan Lindsay. Um, Ethan Lindsay is uh, so for our oh. first anniversary of our podcast, and last week's episode was our anniversary episode. Uh, our now beloved friend Ethan Lindsay made us a website, got us a domain name, and so it is now under construction. You can check it out in progress with the asterisk, but it will at the very least be up and running soon because now we're working with him on honing it and making it our baby but exceedingly persuasive.com uh spelled like the show name we is... have a website it's being and birthed, the only babies. reason we have a website is because ethan Lindsay. he's a graphic designer he's a listener of the show he does a lot of he, stuff yeah he, he does, does like a lot graphic of design web design um like promotional very, social media very stuff. kindly made this website for us and it right off the bat looked amazing and is also like working with us to make this website functional and um did such a great job and so thank you ethan and it's gonna really appreciate it we appreciate it so much and i think it's gonna facilitate us being able to talk to all of you guys more and like work with you and communicate and make it all more fun and dumb all that good stuff. More easily accessible. Hopefully, it's just a way that you guys can find our info more easily and show notes more Ask easily. Us questions and, and... Um, speaking of access, uh, yeah. if you would like to reach us on social media, you can hit me up at Brooke Angeline, A N G E L I N E, Brooke Angeline on Instagram. You can hit me up at B K E Rogers on Twitter. You can DM me. I think. I think that I have. Yeah, you can DM me on Instagram. I don't know if you can DM me on Twitter. I have not figured that out yet. You can DM me on Twitter. And surprisingly, very few people have gotten confused about, like, well, actually, I don't know. We'd have to talk to Philippa Sue to see if they've been messaging her and thinking it was you. Um, But don't be confused. Her account is Brooke Angeline. That's her. Mine's Brooke Angeline. Yeah. I am not a singer on Hamilton. Yet. 
Um, okay. What's not happening? <laughs> my Instagram is uh, what MKZ Joy Brennan. Um, and but my Twitter. She's got her haircut, so you can check out her I new did. hair on that. Give a I'm give a, her real a little boy. compliment. Give me a little ruffle. Um, and my Twitter is get me to a nunnery, but the two is the number two because I'm kind of hip and kind of kooky. So you're, you're quirky. I know. Uh, DM us stuff you want to hear about, any feedback you have. And check out the website as it evolves. We'll, we'll let you know when it's up and running in a fully functional way and, um, follow, like give Ethan Lindsay a follow because absolutely thank he, you You're we can attest that he's a hard worker and he's very really good at what he does yeah. and yeah just it's, yeah wonderful all around wonderful yeah. um, so, all right folks thanks and stay safe and we'll talk to you soon you little freaks bye, bye. 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 bye.